our Old Testament lesson, Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21. We are thinking today in our catechism lesson about obedience occurring on earth as it is in heaven. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. Now please turn with me to our gospel lesson, John 15, verses 1 through 8. Often Christians can be mistaken in thinking about obedience and imagining that it is only a matter of us trying really hard. Of course, we should try hard. We should strive after obedience. That is a good thing. We love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. However, we cannot pat ourselves on the back when obedience comes forth because we are dependent upon God in Christ by the Spirit. So let's hear now John 15, 1 through 8, and find our source of obedience. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Our final lesson. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Hearing verses 1 through 8. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's uh, read now responsibly our catechism lesson as we come to the 49th Lord's Day of this calendar year. Recall that we are unpacking the Lord's Prayer, having considered already the Apostles' Creed as a summary of the Gospel, the Sacraments, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer, those great summaries or rubrics of the Christian faith. And so now, as you consider the Lord's Prayer, I ask you, question 124, what does the third petition mean? You will be done on earth as it is in heaven means... Help us and all people to renounce our own wills and without any backtalk to obey your will, for it alone is good. Help everyone carry out his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Well, may now uh, the Lord bless our time of teaching and reflection in his holy word. Um, we are thinking about the Lord's Prayer, and one of the main themes that I've been trying to bring out for us is the importance, the great importance, of learning from the Lord's Prayer to embody God-centered prayers as we come to the Lord and pray. Recall that the Lord's Prayer is given to us both so we might say it and use it, and also that it might guide us. Matthew and Luke clarify this. In one place, Jesus says, pray this. The other, pray like this. It's both something to use and also a pattern to follow. And one of the great things that we see in the Lord's Prayer is the centrality of God to prayer. Now, you might say, well, duh, Pastor Zach. We're praying to God. Of course he's central to prayer. No, I mean more than that. We oftentimes come to God because... We have a need, and so we come to him to ask him to meet our need. That's a good thing. We want to recognize when we have needs that we should bring them to the Lord, right? If anyone has a need, you, you come to pray to, the, to, to God. What happens that's problematic is when that becomes the only thing we pray about, our own personal needs. Then, our prayer life becomes something that's very actually self-centered. And we begin to treat God like a genie in a bottle who just helps us out where we need help. Do you see what I mean? Because if we only come to Him when we need help, then we don't, are not coming to Him to worship Him, to celebrate Him, to place Him at the center of the universe. Instead, we've placed ourselves at the center of the universe, and He's a supporting character to help us out. That we might become successful or whatever. But if we adopt the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, we begin first by worshiping God. Father in heaven, He is the transcendent one. Hallowed be your name. May your glory shine forth. May you be worshipped across the world. Thy kingdom come. 
not my kingdom, but thy kingdom. May you reign and may you rule and may that heavenly kingdom come to pass in all its consummate form on the day when Jesus returns. And until that time, may your gospel go forward that your kingdom, your success, your glories might be heralded across the world. How God-centered is that? And now today we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May he be obeyed. Right? Because the Lord's Prayer is teaching us about God-centered prayer. Now it will get to our needs, and those are important. But we're not there yet. And so today, we think about being God-centered in terms of God's will. Our first point here is the will of God. We must make an important distinction here to understand what Jesus is speaking about. There are two common ways that the will of God can be used. Sometimes the will of God can simply refer to whatever happens. Something disastrous happens or the crucifixion happens. Back, you know, 2,000 years ago, we say that was God's will. In other words... The will of God can be used to refer to God's providence, His sovereignty. He appoints by His one decree what will come to pass, and it does. So that can be called the secret will of God at times. That's one way of speaking about it. Uh, using Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God, the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That text has been used then to speak about a secret will, that God does things mysteriously. He plans all things out. It happens. We don't know what's going to happen, but he knows because it happens by his decree. That's the secret will. But then that is distinguished from the revealed will. In other words, what's been revealed to us and to our children forever. Again, Deuteronomy 29, 29. In this way, will is being used in a different sense. Okay? There's a bit of an equivocation happening here. This way of using the word will is to speak about God's revealed will, his command, what he commands us to do. So God's moral will for us is found in the Ten Commandments, of course, two great commandments. It's also God's will that we believe in Jesus, that we repent of our sins. These things are revealed for us and to all mankind to follow God's revealed will. Okay? These are the two different ways of speaking about this. Um, when we think about God's will of command, we might think of Psalm 103, which you just read. Bless the Lord, O you his angels. Keep this in mind for our next point. You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. The host refers to the angels again. His ministers who do his will. Or we might think about our reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your holiness. It's translated here sanctification, but holiness probably better. So, when we think then about the will of God in that respect, the revealed will, his will of command, we immediately recognize our second point, that there is a disparity between heaven and earth. There's a disparity between God's will being done in heaven and on earth. In heaven, the elect angels do completely God's will. 
They never fall short. Recall, I'm reflecting here on the elect angels. Not the fallen angels or demons, but the elect angels spoken about in Psalm 103 are characterized by perfect obedience. They cannot fall. They will not fall. God, by His providence, His secret will, has appointed that they would always obey His revealed will. They will do whatever He has appointed for them to do. So whether they are like Gabriel, sent forth with messages, they will do it. Or if they are sent forth into battle, like cherubim, the flaming ones, who lead forth in battle with flaming swords, they will obey. Or whether they are called to worship like the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, with two wings they cover their eyes, two cover their feet, with two they flew and cried out, the sanctus, holy, 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 right? They are obeying the voice of God, the revealed will, and the angels do that perfectly in heaven. So too, we can point to heavenly obedience with respect to departed Christians. Christians who have died, their bodies go to the grave, they're buried, but their soul goes to be immediately with Christ in heaven. Just as Paul says in Philippians, right? I desire to go and be with Christ. That's far better than being here. Or like Jesus told the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Not according to his body, of course, that was buried and will be raised to the resurrection of glory on the last day, but his spirit went to be immediately with Christ in heaven upon death. Now, the question is this. Those deceased Christians who are in heaven by their soul, a.k.a. spirit, same thing, are they still sinning? No! Not even close! In Hebrews 12, verse 23, we read about the spirits of the righteous that are made perfect. And within Hebrews, this language of perfection in Hebrews, ladies, you're going to do that Bible study in Hebrews soon, so pay attention here, Perfection in Hebrews is about glory. It's about advancements from this created state into the state of glory of new creation. And that is the perfection into which the spirits of the righteous have entered. They are made perfect. Hebrews 12, they are located very clearly in heaven. They're the spirits because their bodies are in the grave. They are righteous because they are perfectly obedient and made perfect conformity to that realm of glory. They are not able to sin by God's providence. But for us, what a great disparity, right? We have that Romans 7 experience where we love God's law and we're growing in love for it and we want to do what's right, but then we find a different principle operating in our, in our flesh. And so we try, and yet we still fall short day after day after day. And as our catechism teaches us, according to Romans 7, even the holiest of men in this life have only a small beginning of the new obedience that will characterize us in glory. A small beginning. Even the holiest Christian you can think of. Probably as we think about that holiest Christian, we'll probably think of like a, 
are, you know, I think of my, my 85-year-old grandmother, great-grandmother, who's now with the Lord. Just this wonderful saint of God. Think about certain men in my life who just exemplify what it means to walk with the Lord as Christian men. Even they, a small beginning of that obedience, the great disparity between obedience in heaven, the angels, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and our obedience on earth. We must recognize that disparity. In order that our third point, we come then to God and say, Lord, may your will be done. It's kind of surprising, actually. We think about this petition. Hey, God, could you make sure that your will is followed? Isn't that interesting, right? You can't find a more Calvinistic verse than this. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's that, what's that assume? What does it presume? That God is the one who brings about obedience to his own will. And he will do it. Otherwise, you can't pray that. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about, it's not about wishful thinking. Oh, I wish it were to be done. No. You're asking God, make that happen. Why? Because God can do it and he will do it. He does it with the angels. He does it with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. By grace, he will do it more and more through us. On the last day, he will bring it to pass. Now, if you were to go back into church history, you find that this very point, not exactly on the Lord's Prayer per se, but this very point of who is ultimately able to make us obedient brought great debate to the church in the earliest centuries between the hero Augustine of Hippo, everyone cheers, yeah, and then the villain, Pelagius. <sighs> right? Pelagius was offended because he read in Augustine's confessions that Augustine said, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. In other words, you may tell me to go do anything, I'm subject to you, but I also need you, by your grace, to empower me to then obey it. Lord, command what you will, and give what you command. This statement of utter dependence upon the grace of God for everything in our Christian life. And Pelagius didn't like that. Because Pelagius thought, we're all pretty good, actually. Thought, you know what? When we're born, we don't have a sinful nature. We're a blank slate. We, it, our problem is not nature. It's only nurture. Now, we have a problem with nurture as well. I, I, I agree with that. My, parents, my, my kids don't have the best parents. Their parents fail to nurture in some ways. There is a problem with nurture, but there is a more fundamental problem with nature. He would not recognize. And so what Augustine recognized is that there's a problem with nature and that our own nature is not something we can, pre, uh, we can repair. We can't repair ourselves. How would we even go about doing that? If someone could go about doing that, you'd find someone who would never sin. Guess what? Go kick him in the shins. I'm going to tell you right now, they're going to sin against you. They're going to be screaming, cussing, ready to fight you. There's no one on earth who cannot, who, who's able to change themselves. 
Only God can work upon the heart. And so we say with Augustine, command what you will. Give what you command. The same thing we see in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apparently, Pelagius left that book of the Bible home. It's sad. So if you are not going to depend on God and cry out to God and say, give me your spirit, empower me forward, then you have that bootstrap theology. You're saying, I'm going to do it myself. That does not give honor to God, and that is not successful in the renewal of the Christian life. So, as we close, God's prayer here, the Lord's prayer, directs us back to God-centered prayer. And one of our great concerns before we get to our needs, our own personal needs, which are important, is to ask God to grant us obedience. And to ask God to spread obedience across the world. To ask God to expedite righteous living. To make earth look like heaven. Now we know that it will not happen until the day that Christ returns. However, we pray it nevertheless. Because that is our desire. That is our yearning. That we would obey, that others would obey, that God would reign supreme in the lives of mankind, here, there, and everywhere. And so we pray, God-centered prayers, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.